Microphone check. One, two. CC. Hello and welcome at CC. Hello and welcome at one, two, three, four, five, six. She sells seashells by the seashore. She sells seashells by the seashore. There we go. Rolling. I'm not just praising Netflix because they're our distributor, but their notes were like empowering and in, in, in a fascinating way. I mean, they like are we I think oddly like actually really look forward to getting our notes back because Netflix in a lot of regards was really like they're your first eye they were our first eyeballs that like weren't in the edit bay and you need so much because you I think you can get so close to a project that something that's seemingly that, that 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 you don't think is that important but it creates like a huge informational gap that you need to fill up and then you can clarify things for the viewers and it was just very helpful that way Hello and welcome to The Documentary Life, a show that sets out to inspire and inform you on how to best live and lead your own documentary life. I am your host, Chris G. Parkhurst, and this is episode number 68. And it is brought to you by Barong Films, proud creators of Documentary Film, The Documentary Life Podcast, and The Documentary Academy, our industry-changing A to Z documentary filmmaking program that will transform you into the documentary filmmaker that you've always wanted to be. Find out more at thedocumentarylife.com slash academy. We've been getting some great response to shows that we've run recently. They were shows that were guested by filmmakers like Steve James, Margaret Byrne, Kelly Richmond Pope, as well as last week's guest, Michael Weesey. Topics ranged from ways to make your personal documentaries to how we're connecting with our world through our doc filmmaking and the importance of making your own splash with your doc film. A lot of what these topics and guests have in common is how we're all living our documentary lives. Not surprisingly, I guess, given the nature of the show, this has resonated with a lot of you. I've received an abundance of emails and have seen a lot of shares via your social media platforms with shows from the past month or two. Sometimes when I'm putting together shows, I can get caught up in providing a flashy name as a doc industry guest or providing you with a top five list for some aspect of your doc filmmaking. And because of this, I sometimes can forget the value in having that sort of documentary life conversation, providing content and talking about the aspects just outside of actual doc filmmaking. That is part of what is always a bigger discussion here, right? Perhaps even at the very heart of our discussions. Things like lifestyle and inspiration. The latter in particular, for whatever reason, I feel like a lot of you have been reaching out to me lately, thanking me for the inspiration that the show is giving you. Some of you have even shared with me some of your very real challenges associated with trying to make your films or living this stock life. And I've been absolutely blown away by the bravery and the vulnerability that you've shared with me. Now I'm going to take a moment and read a portion of a wonderful email that a listener recently sent to me. And this this is an example of the kind of listener response that we've been getting lately. This one comes from Doc Lifer Tristan. It reads, Chris, thank you first and foremost for the documentary life. I've been listening to it for about a year now and I love the show. Unbeknownst to you, we shared an intimate road trip from Austin, Texas to Florence, Colorado. I'm pumped that you wrote me back and you might be in for a long email. 
I've been wanting to see your film Journey to Kathmandu since I started listening to your show, but I was not entirely sure if I'd be into some goats going to the slaughter. I used to watch them get slaughtered and served up every day from a guard post on the roof of a burned-out macaroni factory in Baghdad al-Jadid. By the way, that's an absolutely amazing image right there, Tristan. Your documentary was excellent. And there was so much more than just the goat's journey, your journey, the new merchants, etc. I'm floored that you did all that work for a 35-minute short. And in 35 minutes, I was whisked away to Nepal. And I learned something that a significant percentage of the 7 billion travelers on this planet will never know. Now about me. I'm a 40-year-old dude that spent 21 years in the military. I've been to a few places in my career, and to me that's amazing considering I grew up in a little town in the Pacific Northwest. The military for me was a lifelong dream, and when I turned 17, it would be the direction I needed to take because the other fork in the road was prison, which a few of my close friends decided to pursue. When I was in high school, the nerdiest, oldest teacher that I had found out about my aspirations to walk in the mud, get blown up, and wear a dress uniform that doesn't breathe well in the summer, and he gave me some advice. He said, son, take a camera with you everywhere. I tried to, and long since have I lost those exposures sweated over in a 30-minute instant photo shack. I have stories that I want to tell. I don't know how to do it, and I could be afraid or lazy or a bit of both, maybe a lot of both. I have a camera, a tripod, a Tascam, a Rode mic that connects to my Canon 80D, Final Cut Pro. I have a lot of stuff, but I might be selling my stories short. I don't know. I recently enrolled in Full Sail's digital cinematography online course. I'm back and forth about what I want to go to school for. I've had a few classes in new media and communications, and I'm even thinking of switching my major back to media communications because I love photojournalism. Which leads me to why I downloaded your movie. I have an assignment where I was asked who do I admire in the industry profession that I chose from a list of about 10 from media journalism. I don't follow it too much, though I love docs. I don't know the names of journalists or filmmakers because I've never been a name person. And after a few TBIs, I have to actively tell myself to read the names on a movie or even just remember a name. I only had two favorite journalists who aren't with us anymore. HST, which is, of course, Hunter S. Thompson, and Ernie Pyle, respectively. I've been a fan of yours for a while. When I feel like switching majors and studying philosophy or something, you reel me back in with stories from doc lifers like Kelly Richmond Pope, who essentially said, and I quote, just do it. She made things happen for herself, which many doc lifers do. And sometimes that's all I need to keep from fading out. But I'm worried if I don't start something soon, I'll just be sitting here with dusty equipment. After working on my assignment for the last few days through science and introspection, I've concluded that you are someone that I admire in this industry a lot. I see a lot of similarities in our personalities that I can relate to on a more intimate level, and your optimism, it's refreshing. You have your own production company, and you follow your dreams to the end of the world and back, only to come back and try to inspire more people to do the same. Tristan, man, I I could never thank you enough for that kind of an email. Actually, in a way, I hope that our podcast thanks you thanks you in some way. I believe that it does. And I think that your nerdy old school teacher, he knew something all along when he told you to take pictures of everything. And there's certainly some, let's say, sagely advice there that you should be using now in your life. 
And that is the recognition that there is something within you that needs to be filming and telling people stories. And then if you're not careful and you don't pay heed to this, you could go another 20 years and maybe, you know, metaphorically, maybe lose more of life's film exposures. Get out there, my friend Tristan. Grab your camera. And I know that you've got gear because, you know, you listed it out there and I mentioned it here on the program. You detail these things out. So get out there and start filming. Start today. You will not regret it. And that's really what I would like to leave you all with today before we move on to our guest segment. That the power and the impetus, it's within you. Each and every one of you. And I don't say this flippantly or lightly in any way. I say this from deep respect and my own actual real life experiences. I know that it can be done. And that the only one that's holding you back from your film, it's you. There is no amount of reading filmmaking books or listening to episodes of TDL that could actually do the most important thing that you need to do in your doc life, which is make your doc film. Even our upcoming guests, McLean and Chapman Way, they have a really cool story about how they made their first doc and how they weren't entirely sure how it was going to get made, but that they threw caution to the wind and simply went for it. And it was truly in the going for it that they not only got their film underway, but now have since become two of the hottest names on Netflix with their current docu-series, Wild Wild Country. I'm not going to tell you their story right now, obviously not. That's for them to tell you. But there is a very common and very real message here, Doc Lifers. Whether it be from the Way Brothers, or from Kelly Richmond Pope encouraging you to make your own splash, or from Margaret Burns' episode where she said, and I quote, I have two director credits. No one gave them to me. I went out and made the films. It's how you do it. So if you're looking for any inspiration at all, keep listening to today's episode. Go back and listen to Margaret again or Kelly, or Steve James, or even my segments, because you know that I'm all about it, just picking up your camera and heading outside, shooting something, anything. Because here's the thing, it's a big world out there, and there are many, many, many stories, and they come in all shapes and sizes, often in areas of your world and from people that you never imagined. And you should be telling some of these stories. There is little reason or excuse not to, it's like Michael Weesey said last week when he was on the show, and I quote, Get out there and get it done so you don't end up sitting at Starbucks whining about how the world doesn't understand you. So get out there and start making your film, or keep working on your film today. Your film needs you, and you need your film. So why deny this any longer? When I first came up with the idea for the Documentary Life podcast, I was hoping to reach out and start connecting with other like-minded individuals and maybe create a community where doc filmmakers could learn from and get inspired by one another. And I wanted to have conversations that weren't just about the technical aspects of documentary filmmaking. 
I wanted to also be having discussions on what it meant to live the life of a creative, in our case, as doc filmmakers. And to my pleasant surprise and amazement, that is precisely what has happened with both the podcast and our community group. And now, we've expanded upon that idea with the release of Living Your Documentary Life, a program that breaks down the ways in which you can, through the creation of your art, live a sustainable, creative, and fulfilling documentary life. In Living Your Documentary Life, we remove the obstacles that you currently have in your life that are holding you back from making your documentary film, whether that be financial obligations, your immediate relationships, or your mindset and confidence in your abilities. You will gain perspective, build momentum, and create a lifestyle that serves you creating your best documentary filmmaking projects. If this sounds like the kind of doc life that you want to be leading, we'd love to help. Just head on over to thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife and let's get you living and leading your best doc life today. I'm happy to welcome on to the documentary life today, documentary filmmakers McLean and Chapman Way. These two are responsible for the recent docu-series hit on Netflix, Wild Wild Country. McLean and Chapman, welcome to the documentary life. Super happy to have you with us today. Thanks for having us on. We're really excited to be here. Absolutely. Now, for me, I'd been hearing about this new new hot Netflix docu-series about, you know, Bhagwan Rajneesh. I had had lived in Portland, Oregon for the better part of the last 25 years. I'm not located there now, but I'd lived there for, for a good part of the last 25 years. I'd read a couple of books about, you know, Rajneesh Puram. I was fairly a- acquainted with with sort of the goings-ons in, in Antelope. I'd even toyed with the idea of a doc film myself, obviously not seriously enough to to actually do it. And then a few weeks ago, uh, my wife, Steph, who, who helps produce the program, she told me about Wild Wild Country, and uh, I was um, amazed to see someone had tackled the subject. And not only um, more than a, a simply a doc film, but into a, to a long-form docu-series. And then I saw that the filmmakers were, were uh, the same people behind the Battered Bastards of Baseball, a doc that I am a, a huge fan of. And so with that, I would love to back up a little bit, McLean and Chapman. And I'm interested a little bit in your backgrounds. I, I need to know what you're, first of all, I definitely need to know what your connection is to Portland, Oregon. And, and, and secondly, let's get to how, how film became a part of your life and certainly specifically documentary. Sure. This is Chapman speaking. Um, you know, I grew up uh, kind of my two passions growing up were sports and music. And to be honest, growing up, my dream was to always be a basketball player. I played uh, travel basketball my entire life and uh-huh. wanted to play college basketball. And fortunately, I stopped growing at five eleven and a half. <laughs> and uh, by the time I was about 16 or 17, I realized that that was no longer a, a le- legitimate dream for me. And around that time, I just kind of fell in love with film. I I got a library card where you could rent DVDs for a dollar for a week and <laughs> you watched everything from Charlie Kaufman to Spike Jones to Paul Thomas Anderson to David O. Russell to the Coen brothers and kind of kind of fell in love with those uh, 90s American filmmakers that were really like progressing the 
the independent film scene in America. And so I decided to, I realized watching these movies, what I really loved the most was the cinematography. I fell in mm. love with lighting and how to light subjects and, and composition and, and capturing spaces and environment. And so I did a two year um, cinematography program at UCLA Extension okay. uh, where I really just got to learn the ins and outs. And, and that was around 2006. And so we were actually shooting on 16 millimeter film back then. <laughs> Kind of got a great education on film stocks, loading films, editing on film, um, and I just kind of fell in love with it. And kind of ever since then, I knew in some way or another I was going to be working with the film medium. Yeah, and this is uh, this is McLean. Um, my story was oh, kind of roughly similar. Uh, Chap and I grew up really close with one another. Uh, we there's three there's three of us. Uh, Chap's in the middle, and I'm the youngest. And Brocker, our oldest brother, who actually composes all of our music. I was going to say he's a musician, right? Musician. He's a composer, and he's kind of like our best kept secret and kind of our unsung hero in a lot of ways. He's your DH. Yeah, exactly. And his music always plays a big part of uh, the documentary films that we like to make. Um, but yeah, I went to, I was a history major. Um, I really fell in love with kind of not just history, but just really the world of nonfiction. Mm. I just loved nonfiction books. I loved reading like Tom Wolfe books and kind of um, Michael Lewis books and just really dived into whether it be sports or politics yeah. or culture or anything like that. So I was a history major with a focus on kind of like the 20th century, um, America in the 20th century. And okay. then the great thing about the, my UCLA history program was that like only like 20 or 25% of like your units needed to be taken within the history department. So oh. I was able to take a ton of film classes at UCLA, which is like to get into and I don't think I would have gotten into that program but I was kind of able able to weasel my way in and, and kind of take all these like documentary film production classes and so I ended up like falling in love with documentary because like I said I just love the world of nonfiction writing so much yeah. and then I just kind of saw my, my impression was I, I had all these professors that were so brilliant and they would spend years writing these books and I couldn't help but feel a little sense of pain that I felt like their books never really tapped into anything kind of remotely in the mainstream or, or, or could draw anything other than like a, a anything even close to, to a wider audience. Right. Um, and so I saw kind of documentary as like, well, it's part of this new media. I mean, obviously the visual medium has been around for a while, but with the kind of with Netflix coming around and streaming services and documentary yeah. is kind of becoming more than just these informational programs. They really seem to have like take on like a big entertainment value. Um, as I was kind of in college, um, I just kind of started thinking about documentary film and it wasn't until Chap told me that he had kind of come across a, a photo of a baseball team that my grant that our grandfather had owned in our grandmother's garage and it was a baseball team called the Portland Mavericks. Yay, Portland, Portland Mavericks. Yeah. And then Chap was like, "Hey, how 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 do you feel about this? Is this uh is this something that 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 we along with our producer Julie would would be interested in working in and mm -hmm. we kind of kind of got cracking there. That was like 2013. And so at this point, how does the battered bastards of baseball really start to take shape? Do you guys head up to Portland, start poking around there? Are you doing your research um, you know, via the internet? How does that start to take shape for you? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. At the time there really wasn't that much coverage on the Portland Mavericks online. Yeah. I mean, I don't even had a Wikipedia page at the time and yeah. so um, we really, Mac and I had to drive up to the, the kind of Portland libraries and go through the, the microfilm there and start <laughs> all the old newspapers and kind of doing research the old school way. Um, and we, 
like it was very strange because we grew up with all these family connections. We knew that my grandfather kind of knew the guy who created Big League Chew, and we knew that he was oh, friends right. <laughs> with the, the ex-Yankee pitcher, and somehow Todd Field, the Oscar-nominated filmmaker, was a friend of my grandfather's, but we, we yeah. never like put it together. What was the connection between all these interesting characters? Oh, right, because so, Todd Field, he's from, I think, Beaverton, Oregon, or Portland, or something like that, right? Exactly. Okay. Grew up there and was the bat boy for the team and, and, and kept in touch with, with my grandfather. And so kind of as we started doing research, we just kind of came across all these amazing characters. Long before steroids and multi-million dollar contracts, there was a truly independent ball club. A bunch of guys who were hopeless dreamers looking for a second chance. In short, the best kind of people. One of the things that really excited us was, you know, if you write a feature film, uh, you know, a screenplay, you got to wait around for financing. You have to get a ton of producers on board. You have to get agents. It's such a slog just to get the project off the ground. But similar to you, uh, my wife, Juliana, is our producer as well. And so we had just gotten married. I think we had like $8,000 in wedding money. And Mac had just graduated college and had like three or $4,000 from his graduation money. And we kind of pooled our money together and said, so let's see what we can make, you know, for thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars And so <laughs> we, we, we rented, you know, we got a good deal on some red cameras that we could rent and we rented a studio stage. We could only afford two days in Portland mm. on a, on a psych stage. Mm. And so we, we kind of scheduled all of our interviews for like two hours each. And we interviewed everyone over two uh, days. You guys didn't shoot at Cinerent, did you? We did shoot yeah. at Cinerent, oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I know Cinerent well. <laughs> I can't remember the name of the other place we shot, but I can't remember. But yeah, we shot there and, and basically all of a sudden realized at the end of these interviews, like we came across some like really incredible interviews and characters and storylines. And spent basically the next two years editing and, and getting archival footage from stations in Portland and wasn't quite sure what we had, but yeah. you know, we submitted a rough cut to the Sundance Film Festival and they just responded so positively to it. And that was kind of a big turning point for us. Oh man. And did, did you guys rent your, the Reds uh, up in Portland or, or did you have them from LA? I found like a film student through at UCLA that was willing to give us a really good discount. Nice. And it was like, it was like the first generation of the Red Scarlet wow. um, that was pretty new. And, and entrusted you to, to travel up to Portland with them. That's pretty great. But yeah, it was like, it was so early because if you like recorded for more than 20 minutes at a time, the cameras would overheat. Yeah, yeah, that's right. On them and like, <laughs> it was very early on in the Red Camera days. And so it was, yeah, it was quite and, an adventure. And, and like he mentioned, we kind of, which for Wild Wild Country, we fortunately had a, a bigger budget, so yeah. we didn't have do this but like we really only did could pay for like two studio days so yeah. but we did like we almost we i think we had like 10 or 11 talking heads like especially in portland um so we would like kind of book these like two-hour interviews and just like i mean it was like a slog for us and but went for going and it's like you're, you're just like done with one person and the next person sits in the chair and kind of at the end of the two days it was like all right i i hope we got it i hope and we got it <laughs> kind of, we better have it <laughs> yeah we better have it exactly there wasn't a lot of time to like pause and reflect and, and or go do reshoots or something yeah right did you now did you shoot at another studio did you say we shot in, uh, I can't remember in Portland, but then we did a day in Los Angeles where we interviewed Kurt and our grandmother and Todd, because that's where they lived. Okay, um, so right. it was like one day in Los Angeles and then two days up in Portland. Maybe the other place in Portland, was it, was it Picture This Studios? 
It was. You know, you just sort of happened to, so maybe uh, you just sort of happened to mention a particular name. Um, mm-hmm. And in full disclosure, we should, uh, I suppose, let our audience know who exactly Kurt is that you're referring to and, and exactly who the grandfather is that was the owner of the Portland Mavericks baseball team. Yeah, so Kurt Russell is our uncle. He's a well-known actor from you know Tombstone to Stargate to you know Escape from New York. I've and, heard of him. I've heard of him. Is <laughs> fairly well known, and um, his father, our grandfather, being Russell, both of them, you know, growing up were absolutely insane baseball nuts. Yeah. Uh, it was actually their their main passion, even more than acting. And our grandfather was, you know, best known for, for being the sheriff deputy on Bonanza television show for 13 seasons. And so, (laughs) um, after the show ended, uh, in 1973, um, my grandfather decided he wanted to do something with baseball. It always been his first love. And Kurt was playing minor league baseball for Walla Walla (laughs) at the time up in the Northwest area. And, saw that this territory in Portland was available for a minor league team to open. And so he decided to, you know, purchase the territory of Portland for a minor league team it was $500 and try, basically revived the, the, the spirit of independent baseball. He yeah. decided that they would have no affiliation with major league teams and basically people, ex ball players, people, uh, uh, players that had retired that were never given a chance kind of flocked to these open tryouts in Portland for one last shot at, at glory. At glory. When we first heard about Bing Russell, there was this buzz about, well, who's Bing Russell? And he was in the Magnificent Seven, and he's the sheriff from Bonanza. My dad got killed 126 times, I think it was. Why would Bing Russell come to Portland? Bing was out to prove that independent baseball could work. I think we charged Bing $500 for the franchise. So we started from scratch. We're going to have open trials. Show us for the fools that we are coming from Hollywood. I have to say, watching watching someone like Kurt Russell, watching you guys interview him and, and listening to him talk about baseball, um, it just really confirms, I think, my love for his work. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. yeah, Kurt was a he was a baseball guy. That's brilliant. Uh, same with Todd Field. That's, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. So, the Battered Bastards of Baseball is is a wonderful doc. I love it. It's a great it's a great documentary. But man, how does one go from something like Battered Bastards, right? How does someone go from that to covering as their next documentary venture this incredibly vast, rich, crazy, insane historical story that would eventually become Wild Wild Country? Yeah, it was definitely a big jump for us just in terms of scope um, and kind of the magnitude of this project. Uh, Basically, we were in 2014, after we finished the Battered Bastards of Baseball, we were talking to the Oregon Historical Society and they asked us, you know, what we were going to be doing next for our project because they had helped us out with archive film and footage for the, the Portland Mavericks story. And Matt Cowan, one of the archivists over there, told us that he had this incredible collection of 300 hours of archive footage on what he said was basically the most bizarre story that happened. And he he gave us a very quick rundown about this guru and this $100 million utopian city that was built. And they armed themselves with assault rifles and took over the neighboring town of Antelope and then bust in thousands of homeless people and led to this mass poisoning of over 750 people. And I I remember Mac and I just thinking like, there's no way this story is true. Of course, yeah. We would have we would have heard about this. How, how have we not heard about this story? Yeah. 
what we found out was basically in the state of Oregon, it's an incredibly well-known story, but yeah. as soon as you kind of leave Oregon, it seems to have really been forgotten. And so we started doing some research and kind of beyond the sensational topics of the sex cult and yeah. these weapons was this really complex underbelly of, of you know, religious rights, freedom of religion, the fear of the other, um, immigrants moving into America, election fraud, electoral mayhem, and we just knew right away that there's no way to do this in a 90-minute feature. If we're going <laughs> to do it, we kind of just got to dive in and, and make this thing as a long series. And so that was kind of uh, the first step of the yeah, process. Yeah, I would say, like, it was – because with Battered Bastards, um, it was kind of – I always say that, like, for, for us, the hardest step was going from, like, you know, just starting a career mm. – uh, like almost like nothing to something and like for us that was definitely batter bastards like yeah. getting into sundance it was a really unique time uh netflix had done like they had just released house of cards mm. they were really really early in on the original content and like they'd only done like one previous original documentary and had like another one in the pipeline yeah and so he showed at sundance um it was really odd but they i mean not odd but it's just unique to look back now like they almost described to us what their plans were you know in terms wow. of like what they're hitting as a co as a company which today we all know how much original content they do right. um so for us it was really interesting to kind of like work with them on that documentary and then I would say like the next big hurdle in our career was kind of going from like, okay, you did a feature length documentary on a baseball team. Now you want to do six and a half hours on this huge, like cultural political story. That's got a lot more weight to it. It's got a lot more like juice to it. The scope is huge. It's international. Um, it's just a much bigger, bigger story. Um, thankfully it, it wasn't, that, that wasn't always the smoothest sailing, but we kind of stuck yeah. with it. So, so let me back up here a little bit. So, so for sure. you, a contact was made early on with Netflix through battered bastards of baseball at Sundance, correct? Correct. Yes. And from there, I'm guessing, you know, you, you, you have the realization that, you know what, this is way more than a feature doc, a feature doc. This needs to be a long form series. Is it at that point then you decide, you know what, I know who we can approach with this. Let's see if, 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 if they'll, if there's something that, that they would be interested in here. Yeah. I think Mac and I and our, and our producer, Julie, we kind of work a little bit maybe differently than, than most filmmakers or documentarians is that, um, we kind of like to bet on ourselves, so to speak. So kind of as we kind of finance Battered Bastards with whatever little money we could cobble together. Mm -hmm. um, after we sold Battered Bastards, we decided that we were going to kind of put our own money in to starting this this series, this six-part series. And so we kind of took the little money that you know we got from selling Battered Bastards and invested it right into our next project. Yeah. And it was just important for us so that we could – you know have creative control we knew that this was such a complex story and there was a specific way we wanted to tell it and um we just kind of believed in ourselves and so before we even went around to distributors we kind of started shooting test footage and and shooting interviews with characters and basically put together like a 10 to 15 minute kind of promo reel or sizzle reel um with some of the archive footage about what you know uh on the story yeah and then once we finished that, that's when we actually uh, that that sizzle roll was sent to the the Duplass brothers who saw it and and were really excited to buy it. And 
were really intrigued by the story and, and we just really hit it off with them and got along with them really well. And so they decided to kind of join us as executive producers mm. along with our other executive producers, Josh and Dan Braun. Um, and it was around that point, we had been working on it for about a year when we decided, you know, we've got enough footage that we've shot on our own. We've got all the archive, we're starting to edit. Let's, uh, let's see if uh, distributors might be interested. Yeah, this in was, it was at an interesting point because it was, when we actually were conceiving of it as a episodic series, even like maybe pre the jinx, like, right. but, but the jinx was like, we had known that HBO was going to release this big doc series on the single story. Mm. Our sales agents, Josh and Dan Braun at submarine entertainment are like incredibly knowledgeable about independent documentary filmmaking. Mm. I would almost call them like godfathers in that sense. In, wow. In, maybe we should have them on the show sometime. Yeah, they're unbelievable. They sell a lot of docs at Sundance, and we partnered up with them early okay. um, on the Batter Bastards of Baseball. And they were actually – like we wanted to do this as a series, but I think that they gave us like a practical plan forward on how that could actually get done wow. in terms of distribution and like industry-wise. And so when the Jinx came out and the Jinx was like really successful, we kind of saw an opportunity just that distributors would be more open to this. But it was still like pre-making a murder – way before OJ made in America, you know, and like the keepers and things like that. So it wasn't quite like totally solidified yet. And then I think that, and not just distributors, but I think the general, I think people in general in the documentary film industry kind of saw the jinx as maybe that's just like a one hit wonder in terms of documentary series. It's such an incredible ending. Like because of really the ending, of course. Right. Like, yeah. Like, like, can you really go back to that? Well, twice, you know, yeah. uh, it, because it was an amazing documentary series and, 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 and there was a lot to it, but, uh, but so, yeah, I think for us, like we kind of knew though, that, the, the downside in making this as a feature was that it would probably either – you'd have to cut so much out obviously. But the other thing too is like you'd almost have to make it like much more one-sided I think or you wouldn't be able to get like vastly different perceptions of this scene. The nuances and the complexities that you guys get into with the series. Yeah, right. Exactly excited about with with wild wild country is like you get to kind of take the audience on this journey where they're hearing from a lot of different perspectives and it's like kind of they're getting pu pushed and pulled in different direction and it's kind of up to them to draw lines and figure out like where they start where they kind of stand on these issues everybody felt they were there at the beginning of the great experiment like we were the chosen people <laughs> I'm here in one of the largest ranches in the Northwest. Today, it's Rajneesh Purim, because a prominent Indian guru and his followers bought it. Our vision was to create a community based on compassion and sharing. Bhagwan's agenda was simply to raise the consciousness of humanity. That was his goal. America was land of promise. It was my conviction we will have no problems. I don't think America has a place for these people. Everyone in Antelope mistrusts Rajneesh. I want that guru and his evil influence out of my city. They're run by satanic power. There is talk of vigilantes who may seek revenge on the Rajneeshis. A bomb went off in the middle of the community. More than 60 followers evacuated. It was a catastrophe. Mostly unjust, terrifying. If I didn't take measures to protect our community, no one else would do it. We call upon the governor to disarm this cult's army now. 
If the government does decide to get you, they're going to get you. Who would poison a whole town? The Rajneesh set a stage for a big outbreak to influence the election. They had no evidence. They were facing immigration fraud, smuggling. The Rajneeshis came this close to murdering a presidential appointee. There is bias, there is prejudgment, religious discrimination. And this is democracy. I've had enough of it. Something that I have to know, you know, at the outset is, is honestly, how on earth did you guys go about contacting and getting someone like Maanan Sheila, if you will, uh, getting her to agree to be on the program and tell her side of the story? How did that work for you guys? That had to have been tricky. It was tricky. I think the one thing that really helped us was that Mac and I, we had no familiarity with the Sanyasin movement. We mm. weren't Sanyasins or ex-Sanyasins. Mm. And on the other hand, we weren't local Oregonians. And so I think as far as contacting characters, it really benefited us that we could kind of come from this objective place without passing judgment on anyone and just saying, hey, we want to give you guys an opportunity to to tell your story. And I think initially there was a lot of reluctance on both sides. I think this was a very traumatic event for yeah. a lot of people. It's something that they don't enjoy talking about. Yeah. After getting to know them, it became clear that that they didn't want this story forgotten. In the end, they felt that this was an important story. It was an important American story, and it deserves to be remembered. And they both see it as kind of a warning sign, but for two totally different reasons. <laughs> right. You know, talking to Sheila, she's been in this small village of Meisprock, Switzerland, for the last couple decades. Um, she hasn't been doing a lot of press. She's been kind of just hiding out there, so to speak. And um, we were able to track down a, a, a random email address based on one of the, the health institutions she runs in wow. Switzerland. We basically got her on the phone, introduced ourselves, told her a little bit about what we're doing, the research we've been doing, the footage that we had found. And within, you know, within a few minutes of talking to her, it just it became clear that she feels like she's never really been given a, a real platform to tell her side of the story. Yeah, of course. So, you know, we agreed to travel to Switzerland to spend some time with her, get to know her, go over her story. Yeah, and I think that, I think when we first start on this, is McLean speaking, it's like, like Chap mentioned earlier, within Oregon, I would say this story is fairly well known. Hmm. I mean, unless it's happened way, way before your time. But even then, it probably has come across, you know, your desk at one point or another, just stories that have kind of been trickled down. But, um, you know, when we first started diving into it, it was one of those things where in the docu-series world, they, the documentary series were so true crime-based. But with, like, Roshni's Purim, it, it seemed to me in the very beginning, like, well, the crimes and, like, the criminality of what happened out there is very well-known and well-documented. And yeah. people are guilty to doing this stuff, you know? Yeah. So it didn't seem to be, like, a lot of work to be done in terms of, like, who's innocent, who's guilty, who did, like, a, a typical kind of who done it, like, what's the evidence and where does it point to? Um, but for us, we kind of saw this amazing opportunity to be like, okay, what, but, like, how does this ostensibly, like, peace-loving group <laughs> that are pacifists and meditators and, like, yoga practitioners yeah. come to Eastern Oregon and end up, like, arming themselves with semi-automatic AK-47s? Um, how do how do some people in this group end up putting salmonella in salad bars in the Dallas yeah. restaurants? Reason over 750 people. How do some members of this group hmm. uh, participate in conspiracies to assassinate political officials? It was a little bit more about like the process of what of what of what happened to this group, and I think that one of the central questions in Wild Wild Country 
was whether that kind of transformation of this group was because of like an internal process, mm -hmm. which is like what most quote unquote like cults are analyzed as. It's usually like this internal process that um, is very destructive within. I think what's interesting about Wild Wild Country is it kind of takes a step back, hopefully, and examines like maybe some of the external pressures that at least the Roshanishis felt they were under. Um, and so those were kind of some of the just initial ideas that we were interested in exploring in the story. It was misuse of power, and it was misuse of power against their own citizens, against Americans, against American war veterans. This ugly mentality, I have no words for. Imagine if Sheila had said no, and she wanted no involvement in this project. Do you feel like you guys were still going to continue with this project? It, it was probably a, a toss-up. It was hard to say. We knew at worst the, the archive footage was so remarkable yeah. that if everyone said no, we honestly felt confident that we could cut together an archive-only feature doc yeah. on the story. And it would be a little more artsy and a, and a little bit more strange, but it could still be something really powerful. Totally. Um, but we were just patient, you know? I think something that helped us too is that Mac and I are a little bit younger. We weren't around during the saga. And I think it was um, refreshing for our subjects not to feel like we were passing judgment on them. We were really just curious to know more about them personally and their journey through this. And, you know, I think the the Sanyasins feel like, you know, we've, we're always stereotyped as this brainwashed evil cult. And, and a lot mm -hmm. of the felt like we're always stereotyped as closed-minded bigots racists um, that didn't want this Indian man out there and so for us to come and say hey we weren't even around during the story we got no dog in the fight we just really are interested in capturing like the human experience of this all um, I think was refreshing for our for our talking heads uh, did um, did Uncle Kurt or Todd Fields did you did you guys have any conversations with those guys what, what did they remember about about Rajneesh Puram? Yeah, we, uh, we had a great dinner with Todd right before, uh, right in the middle of pre-production, right before we started production. And, and Todd, you know, was out there in Oregon during this time. And yeah, he of left for New York City, I think right in the middle of it. Mm. So he wasn't around for the poisonings and the craziness. But, you know, he vividly remembered Ma and Aunt Sheila and, and the Guru and the Rolls Royces. Wow. And, uh, I think he was equally as fascinated by the story as we were. And Todd was actually incredibly helpful with, you know, giving us guidance on lenses to use and some technical. <laughs> uh, he's we've remained close with him and, and someone that we really uh, look up to and, and kind of treasure his input and guidance. Yeah, And then it was actually interesting because Kurt, well, Bing had. So the Maverick shut down in 1977. Yeah. But Bing loved Portland so much that he kind of kept his like always called it like a summer apartment. Up That's there. great cool little like studio apartment that was like this loft that he would like have like his office out of and stuff. And he just loved spending summers in Portland. Mm. Um, and I think what he did mostly during summers to keep his, to keep himself busy was he really, he ran like a few plays out of the Portland civic theater, mm. um, a play called the wake of Jamie Fox and, uh, which one, the wake of Jamie Foster. And do you remember any other plays he did? Yeah. But, um, so it was interesting. So Kurt, but Kurt, so, was also in Portland, like a little bit with his dad visiting his father every now and then, but like really early in the Roshni story, like maybe 81, mm. so he like kind of vaguely remembered it. And I think his recollections were kind of mostly the same by people who really did just like were 
adults that paid attention to the news. It's yeah. like they would remember the Rolls Royce guru, you know, like that was like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's the images, right? really interesting is our aunt is Goldie Hawn and she's actually like really into like Eastern mysticism and, and oh, Buddhism. Oh, right. Of course. Yeah. So I remember telling her like, yeah, it's Bhagwan Rashnish and she didn't quite, she kind of remembered that name, but okay. not a whole lot. And I was like, oh, but it's Osho. Like, yeah. As soon as you say Osho, right. She was like, oh my gosh. Like in her, and she totally knew who Osho was because he's like, especially in India and internationally. I mean, Osho is totally like <laughs> one of the highest known, well, well-known gurus like of the 20th century. And so it was like Goldie was actually almost more of a, an interesting eye-opening experience for us of learning like, oh, <laughs> some people in the new, in the new age community know much better as Osho than Bhagwan Rush. Oh, it's wild. I've um, a lot of a lot of the doc documentary work that I do tends to be in developing countries over in Southeast Asia, and it's amazing the number of travelers that I would run into overseas, and and would be just espousing, oh, you you got to go to you know you need to go to Pune, you you need to go to India, and this Osho, you got to check out this whole Osho ashram thing, and and having no idea who Bhagwan yeah. Rajneesh was, and so they would be utterly dumbfounded when I would kind of explain, so, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you guys have this wealth of archival footage, right? So my question for you is, where did a lot of that archival outside of what you were getting, you know, seeing from TV news coverage, where did a lot of that come from? I mean, were were the Rajneeshis like way into filming or were they just documenting everything themselves? Yeah, there was a wide variety of sources. I think first off, one of the things that made the archive so unique um, is because a lot of the archive that we got from the historical society was not just what played on the local news that night. Mm. We had the raw, unedited, umatic tapes that, that these cameramen shot on the ranch. Yeah. So essentially, it was almost like an archival verite documentary where we just had hours and hours of verite footage <sighs> shot you know, between 1981 and 1985, that was unedited. So, you know, COIN or K2 or KGW, the local news stations in Portland, might have run a two-minute story that night on what was going on, but they shot an hour of raw footage uh, that we that wasn't used. Okay. That maybe is more pertinent to the story 35 years later than it was at the time. So that was something really special. The other cool thing was it was just a, a, a great variety of like 16-millimeter film, 8-millimeter film, mm. It was private footage, you know, shot on those kind of point and shoot eight millimeter cameras in the early 80s that really uh, add like an intimacy to the story. And then also the guru Bhagwan himself was one of the first believers in mass media and spreading your message media and they documented almost everything and have access to those to those raw tapes that they shot but you know they put together some like 15 30 minute promotional videos of life in the ranch their meditations what they believed in and Mm. so you're able to source some footage from those uh tapes that were uh, shot by the commune themselves yeah and like that was kind of what the footage that he was just talking about was kind of some of the more like professional uh roshanish footage that was right and I do, they were professionals because their equipment was amazing. And like they, those guys could like shoot the shit out of like scenes. I mean, it was like pretty amazing. Um, 
but the, some of my favorite footage was actually uh, footage that was shot kind of um, by just eight millimeter footage that was shot by just kind of like world festival sannyasins is kind of what I call them because they weren't really like Roshnishis that lived at Roshnish Purim year round, but they would come in for like a week or like 10 days for like the world festival in the summer. And these were by and large people that kind of quote unquote maybe lived like more in the real world, you know what I mean? Like they were definitely sannyasins, mm. but like maybe they had jobs back in their home countries and like this was kind of like their yearly vacation that they would take. Right. Um, but it, that was just like awesome, like home video almost just like, and, and, and I think that like, this is kind of obvious when you think about it, but it took us a while to realize this, which is like when news cameramen filmed the Roshnishis, I felt like they were like a little bit more on like their best behavior. Like, <laughs> stiff, like they knew these images were going out and like going to be broadcast. But when it was like a, a fellow kind of Roshnishi or yeah. Sanya, and filming like they actually seemed like a lot more goofier and funnier and like like happier almost in some way and more so, human even humany exactly like it was a real fascinating insight into a little bit more of what life was like on the ranch for these people when they're goofing around and shooting eight millimeter film i'd grown up understanding thou shalt not kill what had happened there's darkness in all of us. Doesn't make you a bad person. <laughs> so let's talk about Netflix a little bit, and and I would love to talk about this in the context of um, my, you know, our doc filmmaking, uh, you know, listenership who are you know well aware sort of the big ones that are out there in terms of digital distribution, Netflix probably being the biggest at this point, certainly for doc filmmakers. Now, I understand, of course, you guys had made a connection, right? You'd made a connection at Sundance, and that's huge. But I wonder if there's anything that you could share with us about maybe approaching one of these platforms, whether it's a Netflix or a Hulu or an Amazon. How can we approach these platforms with an idea for a doc series? Would you recommend approaching them with the idea or would you recommend approaching them, say, with a sizzle reel? Yes, I think it obviously depends on like the level of previous success you've had, the previous film festivals you've played at. I think kind of the most important thing is once, you know, is to get some sort of sales agent on board your project. Um, someone that is uh, has a, a history of, of selling projects to Hulu or Amazon or Netflix. You know, there's a, there's a handful of, of really great um, agents that that can set up these meetings for you connections ours is you know Josh and Dan Braun of submarine entertainment that you know have worked extensively with many different distribution companies um, and they were really important and kind of setting up those initial meetings yeah. with flicks um, I think is vital the other way to go about it is it seems to me that a lot of these companies are tending now to work with the same kind of production companies over and over mm. I mean place like Netflix, a place like Amazon, they have a ton of incredible executives, but they have a ton of projects and it's not really feasible for them to run production on these projects. So they kind of co-produce along with other production companies. Right. Um, and so whether that be participant media or, or, or similar companies like that, I think if you can get your project or your sizzle reel in, in, in front of those people, um, that's also a great step in, into, into getting someone like Netflix interested in your project. Yeah, this is McLean. I, like, I, just to add my two cents too would be I think it, in, 
as far as like the question of like whether to make like a sizzle reel or like a teaser or something that's going to give them an idea of the project, um, I think that it kind of comes down to basically how your idea for your documentary or documentary series is going to sound in a pitch. Mm. And so for us with Roshnish Purim, I don't think we pitched a single executive that ever said that they knew the story. <laughs> <laughs> so you really got to pitch this. A sizzle reel to like show them that this happened, uh, you know, like if you're going in and let's say you have access to Michael Jordan and Michael Jordan's willing to sit down and you're going to do the big Michael Jordan bio doc, mm, you know, mm. um, like yeah, you can go in and pitch that probably without a sizzle reel. And like a lot of executives are going to lean forward because of your access or your storytelling capabilities or anything like that. Right. And so like we kind of, we knew going in pitching an episodic documentary series on Roshnish Purim. I mean, like literally the reactions were like Roshnish, what? Like Bhagwan, what? Like I've never even heard of this. Like, so we knew like we needed to come in strong with something that was going to like kind of open their eyes a little bit to like, wow, I had no idea this happened. And then we were kind of uniquely able to turn that into an advantage where it was like, that was kind of the hook of the story. And uh-huh. while country's been out on Netflix for like 10 or 11 days now, so we've gotten a lot of our perception we've gotten back and, and feedback. And it seems to be like a lot of people are attaching onto that, which I always believed in with the story of Roshni's Purim because yeah. people of Oregon just don't know this story. Um, <laughs> That's right. Their reaction is, well, how did I not know about this? And so that kind of ended up playing to our advantage, I think. In terms of working with Netflix, at what point in the production of Wild Wild Country did they begin funding for you guys? And did they end up funding for the whole production at some point? Um, yeah, it was a little bit interesting. We kind of, so after we got, we teamed up with Josh and Dan Braun, we teamed up with Mark and Jay Duplass, yeah. uh, Duplass Brothers Productions, and they were kind of the first to kind of start you know, fronting us money um, so that we could kind of begin interviews. Okay. And it was for pretty fairly early on in the process um, that we then teamed up with Netflix as well. Okay. And so I can't, I, we can't quite discuss the exact uh, details of, course. of the arrangement, but um, yeah, the Duplass brothers were the first to kind of give us money just to kind of start along with our own money that, that we invested. Right. Um, and then fairly early on, once we kind of got all of our characters on board and started shooting, um, Netflix uh, came on board as well. And how involved was Netflix in, in editorial decisions? Like how often were you screening with them? What kind of input were they having? How did that work? Yeah, we had a, a couple great executives over there. Our kind of lead executive on on the project was uh, Ben Cotner, who's actually a documentary filmmaker himself. He co-directed a great documentary called The Case Against Eight um, that premiered at Sundance a few years ago and, and was an HBO original documentary. Um, and so it was really great working with him. Basically, our our system was that you know we would edit each episode. So it'd take us about six to eight weeks to edit each episode. Yeah. And then... Once we felt like it was in a good enough position to share, we would, you know, shoot it off over to Netflix to our executives there, and um, and then they would give us feedback. And what I, I think the really great thing about working with Ben and, and Adam Del Dio over there was that a lot of the feedback that we got was really more 
it was less so like, hey, this isn't working, this isn't working, and more like, hey, this is really fascinating, let's double down on that, this is really interesting, let's pull that apart more. And so it was just this really productive, like positive experience of just making the episodes better with, with each cut, and they were a huge partner for us um, when it came to, to kind of finishing these episodes. Yeah, this is, uh, this is McLean speaking. It was definitely unique because on Battered Bastards, they bought it at Sundance, you know, so that documentary was, was, was cut and then done. Mm-hmm. And so they were really just kind of distributors on it. And for Wild Wild Country, they came on much earlier in the process. Um, so this was kind of actually our really our first experience, like working with uh, executive notes and things like that. We had kind of made Battered Bastards on our own and never really went through a process of that. And so I don't know why, but Chap and I were like nervous about that. Like we weren't like um, I, I think I think it's just more our personality where we like assume it's going to be the worst, you know, and like <laughs> get a ton of notes back, you know, yeah. but like really like, yeah, like Chef said, I mean, I'm not just praising Netflix because they're our distributor, yeah. but their notes were like empowering and in, in, in a fascinating way. I mean, they like we like, oddly like actually really look forward to getting our notes back oh, because nice. we have these like hour long discussions amongst ourselves with us two and our producer and yeah. our editor and like we would go through these notes and like discuss like exactly how we implement them in a way and Netflix in a lot of regards was really like they're your first eye they were our first eyeballs that like weren't in the edit bay and you need so much because you I think you can get so close to a project that something that's seemingly that 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 you don't think is that important but it creates like a huge informational gap that you need to fill up and then it's like oh yeah like i thought that was obvious and then you can clarify things for the viewers and it was just very helpful that way well you know i have to say i'm not entirely surprised about your um about your experience uh with netflix as as doc filmmakers and i say that because i recent now the show hasn't run yet but i recently I recently uh, recorded with Gary Cout, who's a producer of the docu series Flint Town, who came, yeah. which came out about the same time you guys did, and uh, and he he had nothing but great things to say uh, about the people over there at Netflix, and and part of his reasoning was he's like I, I I was dealing with people who who were doc filmmakers, so who have been doc filmmakers, and so so they got it, they get what we are trying to do, and like the experience that you have had. They um they loved getting the notes back and felt like they came from a place of someone who really understood documentary story and uh, and and they also it seems like they had a very empowering experience themselves. Yeah, we couldn't agree more. That was that was ours. You know, Adam Del Dio is a filmmaker too, who's made some great documentaries. And so um, between helping us like add clarity to the show and uh, helping us pull apart uh, some some of the topics even more, I think it it only helped make the series yeah, better. I mean, the other thing too is it's kind of obvious, but it's like your interests align with them so much because all they want is people to watch your show, mm. which is really what you want too. Otherwise, it's like what's the point in making these documentaries yeah. if you don't want a lot of people so there's not really this concern of the box office or like well how are we gonna like recoup our money or like how are we gonna like sell this in a certain way and how are we gonna split up like things like that it's like it's just a much more pure conversation about like how do we make this the best it can be so that like our audience will, will, will tap into it and I think that's like why Chap and I are drawn to making documentaries is because it seems like there's such immediate access to them now. Like they're not just in movie theaters. I mean, I love documentary films and I love seeing documentary films in movie theaters, but personally, like I also like watching documentaries on my small laptop, like right before bed, you know, it's like a kind of a quiet, intimate experience and they feel very real and they're like fascinating 
there's so many fascinating documentaries to watch. Um, so I like, I kind of love working kind of on that small screen. Um, it, and it's, it's been fun. As we wrap up here, McLean and Chapman, what I would love to get from you guys here, take a moment. And if you could think of any sort of advice on what we've talked about today, and maybe it's geared towards if you're going to say something to to our doc, documentary filmmaking audience about doing a long-form docu-series or trying to get your film on one of these bigger digital distribution platforms, what kind of recommendation or advice do you guys have for us? Yeah, sure. First, my creative advice, and, and this isn't going to be for everyone, but it, it's we certainly, this is how we feel is, we try to make our projects as immersive as possible. I think mm. for a long time, people watched uh, documentaries uh, to gain information. It was more of an informative viewing experience. And I think what we've found is that uh, audiences are hungry to be immersed into a story and be immersed on the journey of your characters. And so, and through that, hopefully you gain a lot of insight and information. And so, you know, uh, that would be kind of my creative advice. What's the character's journey? What's the external journey? All the stuff you study um, in film is really applicable to, mm. to documentaries. Mm. And so, um, but you know, there is a million ways to make documentaries, but that's what we've found success in doing. And then I think um, just business wise, and I kind of said it earlier, is I really truly believe like invest in yourself. You know, like if you if you believe in yourself, if you believe in your talents, if you believe in your story, you know, invest in the, the cheapest but best camera you can get. Mm. Um, learn to shoot things yourself. Learn to edit things yourself. Um, it, you know, if you have a vision and, and the hard work that I think the, the more you can do in the beginning to have control of your projects, um, the better things will turn out in, in the long run. Yeah, I couldn't really agree more with uh, what he just said at the end there, which is I think that there's this sense of like being a filmmaker or a director, it's like, well, I'll have my editor edit and I'll have my DP shoot. And, you know, <laughs> I, you know I, and it's like a lot, you know, it's like you, you kind of, um, you know, even acting, like we work with the Duplass brothers. It's like they shot, they edited, they acted too. That's right. I'm not saying you need to be an actor in your own documentary films. You can get other people to do that. Yeah. But um, there's kind of this element of like, oh, but as a director, like what I'm really good at is like, marshalling all these other kind of forces and like if you can reach a certain point in your career where that's you right where that's all you have to concentrate on exactly. and that's wonderful like we had adam stone shoot wild wild country he shoots all jeff nichols films mm. like that was a big he was by far the one of the biggest dps we've ever worked with and he made wild country look beautiful and yeah. like chap edited the battered bastards of baseball um and but we had worked with our our editor on wild wild country like on Batter Bastards right before Sundance. His name's Neil Michael John, and we teamed up with Neil very early on in Wild Wild Country, and he was our full time on, on everything. And we have to pause for a moment and just like commend the work that he did on, on editing this thing. I come from an editing background, and it's astounding what you guys did cutting this together. Yeah, yeah that was going to kind of be my third advice, which is editing, editing, editing. Oh, yeah. Hard to stop filmmaker because you're so in love with your story, you're so in love with your subjects, but whether you're editing yourself or you're working with an editing, editing is the process of taking what's what you love about the story and then making it palpable for an audience. And so you're trying to keep an audience in mind who knows nothing about your work and you know kill your darlings, cut down your runtime. Even though ours was six and a half hours, it, we probably cut it down from what was ten hours. Yeah. So you know, cut.
cut, 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 edit, make it, make it quick, make it sharp, you know, and, and keep in mind that there's an, an audience now you're competing with so many shows. I mean, when you go on Netflix, you're competing with house of cards and you're competing with the crown and you're competing with transparent on Amazon mm. and you're competing with so much great content that I think editing is, is a documentary filmmaker's best friend right now. McLean and Chapman way. What an outstanding and real and, and genuine conversation we've had. Uh, I can't thank you enough. What a, This has just been a blast. Thank you so much for coming on the program. Thank you for being a part of the documentary life. Yeah, glad to be on here, Chris. Thanks for having us on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, it was a really fun conversation for us. Uh, so Thanks, Chris. Day, Chris. All right, go Mavericks. Sounds <laughs> <laughs> great. Don't forget, if you're looking to live and lead a documentary life, you need to head over to thedocumentarylife.com slash yourdoclife and take a look at our Living Your Documentary Life program. We'll help you craft your lifestyle so that you are able to make the documentary films that you want to make and live the doc life you want to live. Mm -hmm.